0: In early spring 2020, the COVID-19 crisis started to hit home. Hospitals and healthcare workers prepared for the worst. At the same time, universities shut down, including nursing programs. Here was a time when nurses would be really needed, but new nurses couldn't get their training. The nursing program at Radford University had an idea.
1: Listening to people's stories is a key element in nursing. Um, You can assess while you're listening and watching. So we wanted the students to listen, to truly listen.
0: Nursing students could get practice by talking to older adults over the phone. Alrighty. So
2: what was your first vivid memory from your childhood that you can remember?
0: But what started as a training exercise turned into so much more.
3: Um, I think it's lying on my back in my first hall and
1: seeing the mosaic of light and, and leave shadows on, on the uh,
2: wall of the living room. I love that memory from your childhood. It's so beautiful. It really, It really brings out a lot and shows that you just absorb so much when you're little.
1: For the student, it was a gift that they didn't know they needed, especially um, during COVID.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, the surprising, complicated, and sometimes beautiful ways healthcare professionals worked through the pandemic. In the months after COVID-19 struck, new federal guidelines meant most insurance companies would now accept telehealth. In those first months, UVA Health, which had already had a fairly robust telehealth program, saw 11 times as many telehealth visits as usual. Karen Rubin is director of the University of Virginia Center for Telehealth, and her work over the years made that rapid response possible. She's joined by Laurie Archbald-Panone, a UVA health physician and professor of internal medicine who helped coordinate telehealth for older patients. Laurie, you work with older adults who are especially hard hit by the pandemic. How did you see them struggling? What was hard? What was hard for my patients?
2: I had patients who couldn't get to the pharmacy to fill their medication. They you know, right. typically would take a a bus, a, a public you know, transportation to get to the pharmacy and get their prescriptions. Uh, and without the bus running, without the safety being able to go to the pharmacy, they couldn't even get their medications filled. They couldn't get their medicines on time. There were a lot of patients who had um, issues that would come up that could have been dealt with sooner. So people that, um, you know, maybe had a sore on their foot that if we would have seen it Within the week, you know, we could have prevented it from getting more severe, but by the time they came into the emergency room or by the time they, you know, came to a telemedicine visit or visit, that it was a much more severe infection. Um, I had patients that, um, because they weren't able to get their medicines, their sugar levels for their diabetes went sky high and they had, you know, they developed new kidney problems from that, um, the impact of not being on their medicines. Um, And again, that's something that hopefully, you know, we could have prevented or or gotten ahead of if we would have known and been in contact with our patients earlier. And so we really wanted to make sure that we could keep in touch with our patients, that we could find a way to connect with our patients, even if we weren't all uh, physically together.
0: Laurie, you helped coordinate a a special plan for long-term care facilities to help them respond to COVID. What was involved in that?
2: So as a doctor that has patients in nursing homes and long-term care communities and assisted living facilities, I would often go see my patients in these facilities. I would often have my patients come into my clinic typically. And as we were moving into the shutdown era, so many of these facilities, because they needed to keep their patients safe, really locked down where that patients weren't able to leave and even medical teams for a time weren't able to get in. You know, as the as the physicians, we needed to figure out a way how to get to our patients. And we knew that we needed to uh, be proactive and try to figure out a way, you know, keep caring for our patients that we have. And how can we make sure that the patients in the facilities are getting the best COVID care if COVID hits?
0: Karen, you've been pushing for and refining telehealth for years and years. Did you find the floodgates just opened for telehealth last spring?
4: Absolutely. Um, You know, necessity is the mother of invention and it was really important that we get to our patients, that we reach them. It was 24-7 planning Mm -hmm. and execution. We had to develop workflows. Remember, our original telemedicine program, as you, was a facility-based telemedicine program. We provided access for patients who were at locations such as clinics or hospitals, not in their homes. Uh, And that's what we had to pivot to very rapidly. And we're grateful for many of the waivers that, that the federal government and the state government enacted that allowed us to rapidly pivot to reach patients in their homes. Um, and we were, you know, our team was working 24-7, uh, you know, every day of the week uh, to to expand the program and to implement workflows that would enable virtual visits.
0: I read that you provided more than 46,000 virtual visits last spring using telehealth. What would a normal spring have brought you? Uh, well, uh, I, I can tell
4: you we actually... In the in the three months following the the public health emergency, we scaled eleven times what we normally would do. We generally supported about twenty thousand patient encounters per year, and um, in FY twenty, so ending by June thirtieth, we were ninety six thousand. So again, you know, a huge increase of more than seventy thousand visits um, supported just over the course of that year.
0: And would you say that's tapering off now? Uh, yes.
4: Because we have, without question, we've scaled back, whereas we were approximately maybe 40% of our visits were virtual uh, or our services were virtual. Now we're back to anywhere between 5 and 10%. But I think ultimately we will settle in on a number that um, makes sense, the right patient receiving the right care from the right provider at the right time.
0: What do you think we'll go to? So from 5 to 10% to about what do you think will be televisits as opposed to in-person visits. What's your prediction? That's a really great question. A lot of it's going to depend on the public
4: policy changes. We had a number of waivers that um, the federal government and the state government implemented for Medicare patients and for Medicaid patients and the commercial plans. Um, and I think where we land ultimately will depend on whether those changes can be made permanent. And there's a huge amount of activity, uh, both at the federal level and the state level, to ensure that these changes are thoughtfully made permanent. And so I... I hope, and it is our goal, to, within the next year, scale to about 15% of our visits being virtual. We've expanded remote patient monitoring, and we've seen the outcomes are fabulous, and patients really appreciate it, to have care when they need it and not necessarily when they have a scheduled appointment. So we have the ability to track patient vital signs in the home, uh, have that uploaded and um, monitored by the interactive home monitoring team so that if there is an issue, it can be identified early.
0: So if it's me and I'm having a Zoom call with my doctor, how are you getting my vital signs? Um, We send patients home
4: with specific technologies that allow them to monitor their weight, their blood pressure, their oxygen saturation in a home setting. That's one aspect of telemedicine. It's called remote patient monitoring. And we have developed algorithms that help us identify those patients at risk who would benefit from remote patient monitoring. So patients in the hospital with congestive heart failure when they go home, they are given a monitoring, a set of monitoring tools or Patients with COVID-19 are monitored uh, when the diagnosis is made or after discharge from the hospital. But we also monitor high-risk pregnant women. We also monitor preterm infants when they're discharged from our neonatal ICU and other children with special needs. A host of patients. Those are the patients that were enrolling in remote patient monitoring, which is different than the patients that we're seeing in their homes um, for for Zoom visits. There are technologies that can be um, acquired that can enable virtual visits supported by remote examination tools. And we have to decide which patients would benefit from that technology as well.
0: Laurie, what about you? Are you able to have a regular Zoom call with a patient and monitor vitals? So we do have um, some pretty, I think,
2: amazing technology that it's not necessarily using Zoom, but using other tools um, to be able to have the video of the visit, to have the audio of the visit, and have a virtual stethoscope at the patient side that we can hear. And that is a, kind of a way that we did it for our facility-based care, um, especially our, our consultative care when patients with COVID-19 is that a staff member at the facility like the nurse would you know come into the patient's room with them hold up the video monitor tablet so that you know the patient could see us we could see them and then they would also have the virtual stethoscope and we would be able to say put the stethoscope here so I can listen to the heart or put the stethoscope here so I can listen to the lungs or you know use this device so I can look in the ear or the throat and it was more than just being able to see the patient, but it was also being able to examine
0: the patient. Tell me the stuff that worked really well for you when you were doing remote visits and the things that frustrated you. Parts that surprised
2: me that were amazing that I hadn't kind of thought of beforehand was not just connecting with the patient but often connecting with the patient and their family so uh, so say hmm. you know I, I'm taking care of a patient, their daughter is involved in their care and would typically you know drive in from out of state to come to a clinic visit with me well when we ha- are having a telemedicine visit with that patient, their daughter can come into the visit virtually and not have to you know take time off work or you know take time to travel or um You know, all of that that goes with physically being there. Even if we're seeing the patient in clinic, if there's someone that they want to participate in the visit and, you know, they can't be there physically, is we're able to connect them virtually so that, um, you know, they're in the room with us on the computer monitor, even if they can't be with us there. And the frustrations? I think one of the um, challenges is that initial connection. So, um, making sure that, uh, we had the time, right, that we were both going to be, you know, on the visit, making sure that the patient had the right, right, um, site to go to that they understood how to, you know, get into the system to, to be there and having, you know, either, uh, the doctor or, you know, the staff be there to help walk them through that process if they needed to.
0: That's right. And that can't be underestimated. <laughs> I know that the big question with telemedicine right now is we're waiting to hear what Medicare decides to do. Why is Medicare coverage of telemedicine so key? Well, of course,
4: uh, Medicare is the largest payer um, if, you know, across the country, uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Medicaid is managed by the state. Medicare is um, You know, managed at a federal level, and there were many restrictions in utilization of reimbursement for telemedicine services for Medicare beneficiaries prior to the COVID nineteen public health emergency. Medicare would only cover video based services when the patient was either at a facility, a specific type of facility, and and in a rural location. Um, Thankfully, uh, the prior administration. Opened up waivers uh, or issued waivers beginning in March that enabled us to respond to be able to expand Medicare services to patients wherever they were located. Now we'd like to see these uh, waivers made permanent, and there is a lot of movement forward both at the federal level and at the state level to see that that
0: happens. Help us understand what the objection is from the insurance coverage. Why would insurance not want to cover telehealth? Are they worried that it makes medicine too easy, that people will overuse telehealth? Um, Certainly that is a concern, that it will drive up costs by overutilization.
4: But we counter, and and based on experience, there has not been overutilization of healthcare services in the COVID-19 public health emergency through the use of telemedicine. So the fear was overutilization, increasing costs, and there was concern for fraud and abuse, although that has not really been borne out, um, thankfully. And our Medicaid agency tracks that. Medicare tracks it as well. And again, where there's been issues, it has not been with fraud and abuse by telemedicine providers. It's been telemarketing as opposed to telemedicine.
0: When you think of your own experience with your medical teams, how much telehealth do the two of you want what would you want? What percent would you say?
2: Yeah, from my perspective, I don't know if there's a certain percent, but there's more kind of when to use it. You know, if it's something right. new and you know, a new symptom or a new diagnosis that needs a lot of evaluation, perhaps that's better done in person in the clinic. But if it's checking in, you know, to see how that therapy is is going and to kind of see if there's anything new or different for a quick check-in. I'd prefer, you know, to be able to just pop in and not have to kind of leave the rest of my day to drive to the clinic park, walk in and all of that. It would be much more convenient if it's going to be a short, quick, easy kind of visit to just be able to pop over online and, and have that visit instead.
0: Well, Laurie and Karen, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much for having us.
4: We're delighted. Thank you.
0: Karen Rubin is director of the University of Virginia Center for Telehealth, Laurie Archibald-Panone is a UVA health physician and professor of internal medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. The pandemic created a contradiction for nursing students. The world needed their medical education more than ever, but they were barred from entering hospitals and nursing homes to get the training they needed. So Sarah Gilbert, a professor of nursing at Radford University, created the Front Porch Project as a way for her nursing students to get their clinical training from a distance. The premise, a series of conversations with older adults over the phone or on the porch, and it grew from there. Sarah, when you created this project called the Front Porch Project, you needed to get your nursing students some clinical experience. So all the students had been sent home when the pandemic hit, And the idea was to match each of them with one of their grandparents. Or if they didn't have a grandparent, they could visit somebody else who was older.
1: That's correct.
0: So what you did is have each student meet with the grandparent or older adult five times. What were they trying to elicit in these five sessions?
1: This gerontology course um, concentrates on how can we keep an older adult living independently as long as possible. Now, when you see older adults in the hospital, oftentimes nurses don't ask the appropriate questions about whether this person can actually go home or not. So we focus a lot on the ability to remain independent, and there are some instruments that we use to measure those, which includes like writing checks and doing your own medication and and doing your own housekeeping. So we had the students focus on those things. So they did a home assessment to make sure that how many steps are there from where they park their vehicle to getting into the house? Where is their washing machine? Is it in the basement? If it's in the basement, then they're having to carry laundry down the steps and wash it and then climb back up the steps with it. And that may not be a safe alternative forever. What's the bathroom look like? Um, Have they had any falls lately? And why did they have falls? I mean, all of those questions. questions that would make a determination on how safe is this person living where they are. That was one of the things we wanted them to focus on.
0: By the third session, students were asking them, what was your most vivid early memory? Why ask that?
1: We wanted the students to get an idea of what these older people remembered from their past. It helped us because Everybody goes through these growth and development stages. So that made it nice for students to be able to associate the behaviors or the actions of
0: mm-hmm.
1: what the older adults were telling them. Uh, but they were also quite quite humorous. Some of the things that the older adults got into when they were children um, was kind of fascinating for the students to hear.
0: Tell me some of the stories they learned.
1: One student interviewed her grandmother And her grandmother said that her earliest vivid memory was when she was about six or seven and that she always played outside with the neighborhood boys and they built a fort. And then they tried to tell her that she couldn't come into the fort. And she said, yes, she was because she helped build the fort. And so she she became more of a, a leader during that time. She was not going to let the boys tell her what to do. And I think the student was kind of surprised that her grandmother was, you know, was that fierce at, uh, at such a young age. Some of the students, um, their grandparents actually still live on a farmstead in southwest Virginia, there were two or three students in my group alone. I had eight students with me, whose grandparents still work a farm, still have farm animals, still have they have dogs and cats and goats and horses and cows, and they have to feed all of them. So their grandparents are very active, and they're they're in their seventies at this point. And there were other students whose grandparents lived um, in more urban areas. But still, we're doing so much that the students were like, I can't believe they do all this stuff. I mean, I can't believe that. How do they have time to do all of this? Other memories that the students uh, focused on were about early high school, um, if they went to high school. So those teenage years, what did you do and what kind of things did you get into? And some of the stories that were related to the students were about my grandmother was supposed to be at one place with her friends, but they ended up going someplace else. And they were smoking cigarettes and drinking and just having a good time, just her and her girlfriends doing things that they shouldn't do. Was the student shocked? Oh, the student was very shocked. That's the thing, I think, is that we don't, as adults, sometimes we don't realize old people have done or have done anything exciting when, in fact, they generally have. Right. Lots of exciting things. For example, one of our students found out that her grandmother, when she was much younger, was a seamstress in New York and made clothes for the Kennedys. Right. How exciting is that to find out that this woman or man who you've known your entire life as grandma and grandpa actually had their own life at one time? An exciting life at that.
0: Of course, that's the case. But what is the power of that? to the younger generation? What does it do for their own understanding of these people, but also their nursing care? Listening to
1: people's stories is a key element in nursing, we think, and we oftentimes cut people off or we don't listen to them thoroughly. So we wanted the students to listen, to truly listen. You can assess while you're listening and watching. So to truly listen to some of these stories, because once they're gone, the stories are gone too. One of the most poignant things that happened this semester, and I hope I can get through this without crying, but I had a student, her grandmother was still living. Her grandfather had passed away. They lived in Southwest Virginia, out in the country. They had a, a farmstead. Her extended family lived nearby. But maybe six weeks into the semester, she called me and told me she had been interviewing her grandmother, but she wanted me to know that her grandmother had just been diagnosed with liver cancer and was not going to survive and was going to be put on hospice. So that broke my heart, first of all, because I knew what this woman meant to my student because she had told me so. And the grandmother did pass away before the student finished her porch talks. But what she said to me was, I would have never asked my grandmother those questions if it hadn't been for this project. (sighs) So my advice is that you should listen to these older people and hear their stories. Because like I said, once they're gone, they're gone. The stories go with them. There are a number of ways to do that. There are some... I have actually looked into this. There are some companies that enable an older adult, if they're computer literate, to be able to, they get a question every week or every two weeks that they answer and they on the computer and send the answer back. Then the child or the person who subscribes to that will get a book at the end of the year of the answer to all those questions. And so will the older adult. That's one way to do it. Another way is just to write them down, just to, you know, begin to write your stories down for your children and grandchildren.
0: In addition to what were your vivid memories from when you were young, you also had the students ask, what would you share with your loved ones about preserving the health of mind, body, and spirit? And what would you have said when you were in your 20s about that?
1: Most of the older adults readily stated that they did things in their 20s and took chances and didn't take care of themselves. But as they got older, they did realize the importance of eating a healthy diet, getting exercise, not smoking, getting your vaccinations, all of those things. They realized that later, like most people do. But the one thing that they want to pass on is don't wait to take care of yourself. Don't wait to eat a healthy diet. That waiting can create problems later down the road that you don't see right away.
0: I'm curious, you teach nursing students, you train nursing students. Are you finding young people are intimidated to go into the profession because of the pandemic and all the heartbreak they saw? Or are they more inspired?
1: To me, they're, they seem more inspired. We just had our 2021 graduates. We had that ceremony. And then we invited back the graduates from the spring and fall of 2020 because that was in the heat of the pandemic. So no graduation for them. But they came back. And I asked them because they all wore their, they were very proud to wear their badges from wherever they were working. And I asked them, So what was it like? And were you, you know, were you scared? And they were like, well, we kind of went in there and we started working and it just got to be habit. You just did what you had to do. You had to take care of people. You just did what you had to do. Mm -hmm. Made me want to cry because, you know, this is a 21-year-old telling me that they donned up in all of that gear every single day that they were working as a new nurse and did what they had to do to take care of people.
0: Hmm. You must have been so proud.
1: I am very proud of any nursing student anywhere. That was stepping out of a frying pan and into a fire, truly. Things changed every single minute. Every time you turned around, there was a new policy, a new procedure or something was going on that so they were having to pivot fairly quickly. And and the patients just kept coming. That's what many of them said. There was no break. There were no empty beds. And you just had to keep pushing on. That's all you could do. So I am um I'm very proud of them and all my colleagues who were out there <clears throat> because this was this was very, very difficult for them. and and we do know that um, many nurses have left the profession, um, have stuck it out through the through the pandemic and are now leaving the profession. So it's it's more important than ever right now that we are able to produce as many good nurses as we possibly can because we were in a shortage before this happened, and now we're in a worse shape than we were before.
0: Sarah Gilbert is a professor of nursing at Radford University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. COVID-19 caught most of us off guard. Others, like maybe your cousin who always stockpiles toilet paper and Clorox, had a bit of a head start. And then there are people like Saskia Popescu. Saskia is a professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. She studies biodefense, and her research is focused on preparing healthcare systems for events just like COVID. Saskia, you're an epidemiologist and infection preventionist, what was going through your mind while the rest of us watched in horror as COVID-19 spread through China, Italy, and the rest of the world before it got here?
3: It's it's tough. You know, I was working in a hospital at the time on the front lines, and I think one of the challenges... My background is really in biopreparedness, so preparing for biological threats like a pandemic was, okay, this is why we have been investing so much time and energy into this, and I'm so grateful we did. And the other part of me was just like, we're not ready. And when I say we, I meant on an individual level, on a community level, and on a national level, and it really scared me because I was seeing countries with very robust healthcare systems and a lot of attention to trying to manage this really struggling. And for the, you know, as an epidemiologist, I think, you know, sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to convey to people that every outbreak is so unique. Every infectious disease has its own challenges. But a novel one means we're essentially flying blind. We had some general understanding of coronaviruses, but what this one would look like was was something that really worried me.
0: You know, but... We had had the Ebola outbreak, so there was worldwide fear over Ebola. It didn't come to fruition in terms of hitting so many nations around the world. But what could we have done, based on what we knew about that, that might have helped with this? Anything or kind of nothing?
3: Well, Ebola is an entirely different organism, and it's, it's spread differently. It requires different infection prevention measures. And what Ebola taught us really, truly is that... There was an assumption, I believe, in how prepared or how responsive we would be. We've invested so much resource, so much money into biodefense and building up our pandemic preparedness in the United States. And a single unexpected case of Ebola in 2014 really brought us to our knees. It showed us that we were not prepared. And this was a, a single infection and not one that you know, was was respiratory. It was something that we could very much contain, but challenged us with a lot of our response mechanisms. So that was a wake-up call. We implemented a lot of measures to address those, but so many of them really highlight the fact that we struggle to prepare for the next threat by using lessons from the old one. And as I mentioned before, infectious diseases are so unique. Even the same disease and different outbreaks can teach us different lessons. COVID-19, I think, has really shaken us to our core in terms of highlighting the vulnerabilities everywhere, supply chain, not just hospitals, the ability to track and trace, testing, but it's also really very much so underscored the social and racial disparities that exist and, in my opinion, has has reinforced and made them even worse.
0: You got your PhD in biodefense. What's the greatest threat to us? Is it more like these pandemics? Or is it more like a nation launching biowarfare on us?
3: I've always been of the notion that it's going to be our natural infectious diseases that pose the biggest threat. I think after the 2001 Amerithrax attacks, you know, that opinion probably was a little different. But more and more, we see that the increasing incidence and role of emerging infectious diseases has really underscored that this is a problem. It's It's increasing. And we struggle to respond to it. So in my opinion, infectious diseases pose the, the greatest threat when they're coming from a natural source, like COVID-19.
0: In your studies, where did you see something comparable to what we're experiencing now happened? Was there anything like this? So we had smallpox, and we had the Spanish flu, we had the Black Plague, where we had polio. Where does this stack up in your mind?
3: I think this is very much a standalone we are at such a different place in society. I really think about the interconnectedness we all have, travel, but also things like social media and information sharing is what makes COVID-19 so unique. If we look at even how much research has been done around COVID-19 since it started, you, know, you have major journals struggling to keep up with submissions. We have preprints that are put out Without peer review and are getting picked up in major news circuits. And so much information that very much changes the dynamics of COVID-19 in a way that I, I truly believe sets it alone from other large-scale outbreaks or pandemics that we've seen historically. In addition to the fact, you know, that this is truly A pandemic that's been felt everywhere. And right now, we're fortunate also to have a vaccine that makes us very unique, but also moving in the direction of what we see in the US is people thinking COVID-19 is very much over. We have access to vaccines, you know, while we are struggling to make sure people get them. For the most part, we have ample supplies, but the rest of the world is struggling with this. Vaccine equity is a huge problem right now. And it seems like we've kind of taken, you know, taken this moment to say, all right, COVID-19, we've got it under control when that's really not the case that we're seeing on a global level.
0: What do you think America's role and obligation now on the world stage should be and could be? The Biden administration is talking about a new Marshall Plan for dispensing vaccines around the world.
3: I think we absolutely have a role in global vaccine equity and distribution, We have to help support this because as we're seeing out of India right now, you know, a country that is totally under siege by this virus and struggling to just get oxygen to hospitalized patients. When we have novel variants that come out of transmission and spread, because that's what happened where a virus spreads, we will have variants. That's just the way they work. The more transmission we see, the more places for the virus to spread is an opportunity for more transmissible variants to occur. So we have to see this, if nothing else, as a reason to vaccinate and to ensure that we're addressing COVID on this global scale. You know, the virus, COVID 19, isn't going to be gone anywhere unless it's gone everywhere.
0: Just before this pandemic hit in America, but it was hitting in China, Italy, and elsewhere. I read a series of tweets by you about how much hospitals have to invest before pandemics hit. In one case, you said, there's very little time for any infectious disease preparedness unless you're lucky enough to have a hospital administrator who seriously values that and is willing to spend the money. Yeah, that's... (laughs) What do we need? I mean, are hospitals going it alone?
3: That's a tough question. You know, that's what so much of my research and frankly, that research was born out of something I saw and lived. So, the challenge is that the US has a very unique healthcare system, right? It's it's very profit-focused. It is a business. It is a private industry for the most part. So, we're asking businesses, hospitals in this case, to invest money in an event like a pandemic or a biological attack that they May not prioritize, they might not see that as a high risk. You know, it's it's a low, um, low probability, but yeah, high impact. Is this the threat you deal with daily? No. COVID-19 has showed how vulnerable healthcare and public health and everybody is. But for the most part, I, I think that people don't understand that there is not a lot of investment that hospitals give or get for preparedness for infectious diseases. You know, there are mandates that we do certain amount of emergency preparedness, but they're not specific to infectious diseases. Yeah, you have to have a plan, but that doesn't mean you practice on it. That doesn't mean you do drills on it. And there's even less attention to resources, meaning money that's given to healthcare to help them increase their preparedness. So it's not surprising that we had the issues we did, and this is not even addressing supply chain issues.
0: What would you now want to see in the hospital system, even though it's a pretty independent system? What would you now want to see across America that we do differently in preparation for the next one?
3: For hospitals, I would love to see that it is required that they invest a certain amount of resources and time into preparedness for biological events. We have seen time and time again, whether that was H1N1, SARS-CoV-1 in Toronto, especially Ebola, and now COVID-19, that hospitals are uniquely vulnerable to infectious diseases, especially outbreaks, and ones of novel or emerging infectious diseases. So I think that this is something we need to start investing in nationally and trickling down into every hospital, especially rural ones, to make sure that they are prepared for the spectrum of infectious diseases, whether that's a viral hemorrhagic fever, a respiratory pathogen, or one of, you know, an unknown, a disease X, as the World Health Organization calls it. And that is a way that we protect patients, but also healthcare workers. And that also needs to include those wraparound services for mental health. Healthcare worker fatigue right now is something. I mean, we've been talking about it since the beginning, but it is real. It's hard. And it's hard for ancillary, um folks like myself and environmental services. So more and more, we need to start seeing the vulnerability that exists and starting to invest in correcting the problem.
0: Saskia Popescu is a professor in the biodefense program at the Schar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Early on, COVID-19 seemed to be an urban problem, but as the disease migrated into the rural areas, the challenges changed, which meant the tactics for fighting it had to change too. Laura Trull is a professor of social work at James Madison University. She says public health officials can use the strengths of rural communities to tackle the pandemic. Laura, during the pandemic, you've seen rural communities really come together and look out for each other. What in particular have you noticed?
5: Well, what's been really exciting to see in rural areas, especially in such difficult times, are the ways that people looked out for each other and the ways that people and organizations were flexible and adapted. So you know people know okay we're you know remember the beginning of the pandemic everybody's wiping down their groceries we're terrified to go to the grocery store okay. we're just starting to wear masks everybody's staying home for really the first time ever to have that prolonged period of time at home people noticed um that their elderly neighbors were not going to get out to the grocery store and People made casseroles and dropped them off. Um, people knew that so-and-so works at a grocery store and is not going to be able to take time at home and has, has, has two little ones. So stepped up to watch the little ones if they could or maybe do some tutoring with the older one or even look in on them. The way they responded to each other as community and neighbors was really heartwarming, um, especially in such a bleak time.
0: You've interviewed people who work at rural nonprofits to hear about the ways they responded during the crisis. What did you learn from them?
5: Yes. You know, you have these hearty, generally small, you know, robust powerhouse nonprofit organizations in rural areas, and they fill a need. They Have a niche usually, something like a food pantry or an after school program. And they saw things were changing. And so they responded to the community. So a little church that, you know, maybe always had a clothing closet and found that they had this explosive need for folks needing um, food, they shifted. They adapted. They started the food pantry. Um, Organizations that used to have an after-school program, well, now they had all these kiddos um, doing school from home and we couldn't get together in groups. And so they adapted. They did porch visits. They did um, drive-bys. They called kids on the phone and, you know, to see if they had the information they needed from their school or if they had the device they needed to participate in remote learning, we were so energized and amazed by the ways in which um, these organizations responded to the pandemic. Um, one of the food pantries that we spoke to went from distributing about twenty five thousand pounds of food per month pre COVID to between fifty five and sixty thousand pounds of food during the months that followed the outbreak. So it, it, all all the way through last year twenty twenty, um, that's a tremendous increase. Yeah. Uh, for a very small nonprofit organization with just a couple of employees and a little room, um, just that that's a tremendous increase and in that they were able to um, see and fill that need, to me, is incredible.
0: Tell me a little bit about rural health care. Even the most basic services are often a real challenge for people. What have you noticed?
5: Yes, that's true. So many times and in so many places in our nation, we have health professional shortage areas where there's no dentist nearby. There's no mental health provider nearby. um, There's no specialist nearby. Uh, Maybe you can have a primary care physician nearby. um, But then if anything becomes, you know, slightly complicated need to see a specialist. And that can mean an hour, two hour drive. And so we find that a lot of rural folks make do and do without um, essential healthcare services simply because they are inaccessible.
0: To help alleviate this, you and others helped bring a massive weekend health clinic recently to your community, the Harrisonburg area, where hundreds of people poured in to get very basic health services.
5: Yes, we did. A group of us in the Harrisonburg-Rockingham area came together, and we were really worried about it because, um, you know, bringing together a large group of people, we tried to do it as... um, responsibly as we possibly could. So we had lots of protocols in place to minimize or eliminate the chance of any COVID exposure. Um, But that meant that patients spent a lot of time sitting in their cars in the parking lot. Mm. Um, Despite that, um, you know, Midnight, when the parking lot opens, we let 67 cars in that first night. Um, Folks that were there before midnight and would sit there until the clinic opened at 6 a.m. and much of the day the next day as they waited to receive services, um, we were thrilled to be able to see um, 443 patients Um, over the course of all day Saturday and part of the day on Sunday. And we provided um, 100 COVID vaccines at that time. And we also provided a a lot of dental procedures and mammograms and women's health exams and cholesterol screenings and blood pressure screenings and um, diabetes education. And a number of patients went home with brand new glasses in their hand um, so it really was a great success because you're right, the need for health care didn't go away during the pandemic. And so I was really grateful that we were able to put some protocols in place to keep everyone safe, to minimize the number of volunteers and to reduce exposure and to bring these much-needed services to our community.
0: When I think about 67 people, 67 cars in line at midnight, What sorts of services were they there for?
5: The most popular service is usually dental, um, dental procedures. And we were also able to provide, um, I believe we ended up with 26 sets of dentures. Um, So we received some special funding from the Rotary Club and additional funds from donors to provide dentures. But there's such a huge need for dental because we have some folks who may be on hard times, um, unemployed, they may have lost their health insurance, and they may qualify for adult coverage in Virginia. So they may have some access to um, primary care services. However, those don't cover dental services. We also have a lot of folks on Medicare who are on a low fixed income, and Medicare is good. It gets them some services, particularly their primary care needs, but it doesn't cover dental and it doesn't cover vision. So we have folks who still need eyeglasses and on a fixed income, going to uh, get a full eye exam and pay for glasses is a three, four, $500 experience and they simply can't afford it. So they make do with their old glasses or make do with readers that they can buy at the, you know, the pharmacy for $10 and have a real serious need for um, not only glasses, but they may have other vision treatments that they need. And we see the same thing with dental. Um, You can only tolerate dental pain for so long, it impacts your ability to eat, it impacts your employability, your ability to speak and engage with others. Um, You can develop terrible infections. People can die from dental infections. It's very serious. And so we often find that dental is one of the most um, needed services at our pop-up
0: clinics. It was such a great idea to also offer the vaccinations right there while people were getting other services. Could you tell they were relieved that it was so easy?
5: Absolutely. That was something I was really surprised by is um, that we were able, you know, of 400 and some patients, we vaccinated 100. And mostly these folks have other things going on in life. They are often living in the crisis of poverty, and when they're trying to figure out, you know, their child is truant at school because they're not home to supervise the remote learning and they've been reduced to part-time hours. They're not sure how they're going to make the rent. And all of those stressors are so incredible. Their tooth hurts. um, You know, those stressors are so incredible. And finding a way to get a COVID vaccine doesn't always make it up to the top of the list. So many of the folks that we saw had received a vaccine already. They had already arranged that in their life. We did see some folks who were going to opt out, and that was their choice. The folks that we vaccinated, many of them were folks who just hadn't gotten around to being able to make that a priority. You know, they said, okay, I'll just, I'll keep my distance. I'll wear my mask and I, I'm just going to have to make that work for now. I can't call six CVSs and see if I can find an appointment. I'm, I can't figure out this online registration system. And so when we said, well, all you need to do is just step right over here. That was huge. Oh my gosh, I've been meaning to get this shot. I've been wanting to get this shot to make it so easy and so convenient. Um, they, just expressed tremendous gratitude for that.
0: Have you thought about what you would love to see to get more people access to the vaccine in rural areas?
5: I have spent some time thinking about that. And I honestly think our health department in Virginia is doing some really creative and innovative things. I have seen COVID vaccination clinics at laundromats, and I have seen a mobile bus driving around to rural areas, um, you know, two hours here, two hours there, two hours the next place. So you, you know, find a time, meet us at one of these locations. So I have really seen a lot of innovative approaches. And I do think that they are really being creative and finding a way to get out there. Um, Something that is usually a really effective strategy and was in our interviews in the pandemic response was really partnering with local leaders. Because I didn't grow up in a rural area, but I've lived in one for the past 20 years or so. And I there are some people to whom I will always be an outsider because, you know, my granddaddy wasn't born here and there's not much I can do about that. Um, Mm. But there are folks who do have those generations of trust and investment in the community. And those folks are real key local leaders and local stakeholders. And we can partner with them and really capitalize on the trust that they've built within their communities. Um, you see this a lot with church leaders as well. We can sort of borrow that trust and bring um, COVID vaccines to folks who were hesitant or want to see how this plays out first, want to you know see how my neighbor does, see how my mom does before I take this on. Um, We really need to partner with these folks and borrow their trust um, to demonstrate to rural folks that we've got the best of intentions. Um, You know, the government coming with a shot to your rural area doesn't necessarily have the warmest feelings or historical references for some people. And so we need to keep that in mind and um, find ways to give them the complete story and, and build that trust like we can.
0: Laura Trull is a professor of social work at James Madison University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quance, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.